You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're tuned in to Healthcare Insight. Well, just when you think all might be lost, there's a glimmer of hope. First things first, though, Georgia's going to have to elect at least one senator, or the Democrats will hold control of all branches of government. The House, the Senate, and the presidency will be under Democratic control, and they can, can, can put through any kind of health care reform that they so desire. We can see a single-payer system. We can see a Medicare for all. Why? Because Democrats have also said they'll do away with the Senate filibuster. In normal times, you'd say, okay, we're going to have some gridlock because Republicans can limit whatever gets passed in the Senate with the use of a filibuster, which requires 60 votes in the Senate. But the Senate leadership has promised to get rid of the filibuster. So if it's a 50-50 tie, which is what it would be if the Democrats win both Georgia Senate seats, they're likely to get rid of the filibuster. Now, Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, has said he won't vote to get rid of the filibuster. But I wouldn't bank on that. He's voted for every Democratic proposal that's come along, including the impeachment of President Trump. So I hope, I hate to hope on that slim vote to prevent real damage to our constitutional structure that's worked for over 150 years with the filibuster. The filibuster is not a constitutional requirement of the Senate. It is an adoption of Senate rules that's lasted for 150 years to prevent the Senate from just being another House of Representatives where a simple majority uh, controls. But the power-hungry Democrats may very well go that way because they have told us that that is the likely outcome. But on health care, if we don't have an elimination of the filibuster, or if Georgia elects at least one of the two senators, then there's actually a glimmer of hope. And that glimmer of hope comes from the new Republican elected representatives in the House. Republicans are likely to pick up 12 House seats. It's absolutely amazing. The Democrats were supposed to gain 10 to 15, and yet it's the Republicans that won more seats in the House. And why is that important? Because some of the new members have made health care, private market health care, the real issue. And let's take an example of that. There's a new representative from Texas, Beth Van Dyne. Beth Van Dyne says the Affordable Care Act was one of the biggest lies that has ever been promulgated in the United States history. The fact that you're going to be able to keep your doctor, it's going to lower your health costs, it's going to increase your quality, all those were lies. It did not happen. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Close quote. She's one of a growing number of female legislators who are really interested in health care, but not in government-run health care. In fact, Van Dyne wants to personalize health insurance plans by need, arguing a healthy 20-something should not have to purchase the same level of coverage as someone with an ongoing medical condition. Her overall goal is to increase access to care, improve quality, and decrease costs. 
Well, the solution these new Congress women, including Van Dyne, suggests include making health insurance portable, in other words, increasing the likelihood and access to individual purchases, and not being dependent on the employer. Buying insurance over state lines, expanding group coverage, increasing the amount of health savings accounts, and making health care premiums tax deductible. Well, doesn't that sound an awful lot like what we've been talking about on this program for months and months on end? In fact, I've been talking about personalized health insurance for a long time and have written an entire book on it. For those interested in it, you can actually go to www.personalizedhealthinsurance.net and you can get a full book. It's free. I'm not trying to sell books to make money. I want to make change, not dollars. The change that I want is to change the direction of this country's approach to health insurance and ultimately to health care. Keep in mind those two are different. Health insurance is how you finance the health care that you get from doctors and hospitals. But we really need to start with making health insurance more affordable to access the kind of quality care that we all need. And there's some things we can do as individuals that can lower the cost directly with our utilization our access to certain services. You can get many services outpatient instead of inpatient. You can do medication. You can do prevention. There's a lot of things we can do directly to affect our health care costs, which is what gets built into the health insurance premiums we pay. But most people, the first thing they really see and understand is what are their premiums and what are their co-payments. And if we can change those, we can ultimately get to a whole different set of issues relative to the actual delivery of care. After all, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act was really about health insurance reform, not health care reform. So if we want a new replacement of Obamacare, we need to think first about health insurance reform. Now, many of the ideas that we've talked about here are national in scope. But the reality is Each state can pass legislation that can create the foundation for a broad national program, and each state can actually implement an awful lot of what we're talking about here in terms of personalized health insurance. Now, many state legislatures are going into session uh, come January. Now, some states meet every other year. Some states meet every year. Some states meet year-round. Some states meet only for a few days in any given year. And I want to talk about Georgia for a minute, since that's been the focus of the senatorial races, but I also want to talk about Georgia relative to health care and health insurance. Now, I am a senior fellow at the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, and they've recently put out a health care guide to the issues of 2020. They meet for the Georgia legislature meets for 40 working days in a calendar year. So they'll start the first week of January and basically go through uh, early to mid April at latest. So here are some of the ideas that would relate to personalized health insurance and some of the issues that Representative Van Dyke was talking about. And it really can be in a series of ideas that can be implemented at state and the federal level. Well, before you get into any actual legislation, there's a certain set of principles I'd like to outline so that any representative 
or any senator of any state, when they're being approached by lobbyists to make changes to their state laws, they ought to recognize certain basic principles. And sound healthcare policy should have the following characteristics. And these are reading from the policy guide for the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, uh, much of which I helped to develop and that they've uh, put out there for the 2020 uh, General Assembly. Actually, it will start in 2021. The first is transparency. What is transparency? Well, it's kind of an insider term, but it really means information should be available and people should be able to find it easily. I actually prefer the term the right to know as opposed to transparency. But what is transparency? Well, the effectiveness of market-based systems depend upon an abundance of information that is easily available and understood by consumers. If properly integrated into care, information can be as important to personal health and health care as a medical test, medication, or treatment. With precise information, people can achieve better health care outcomes at lower costs. So that's the first principle if you're looking at any kind of change or replacement. Another basic principle is patient-centered. Putting economic purchasing power and decision-making in the hands of participants minimizes third-party reimbursements, which foster an environment of entitlement and unlimited demand for health care services. So any program ought to really be patient-centered. The third principle, security for the sickest. Any reform at the state or federal level must work for the healthiest, as well as those who are sick or chronically ill. Fourth basic principle, there ought to be equitable tax treatment. Tax policies should not favor health care purchased by employers over policies purchased by individuals, should not favor financing health care through insurance rather than out-of-pocket, and should not favor high-income employees over low-income individuals and families. Now, in order to get full equitable tax treatment, obviously it needs to be implemented at the federal level because currently there's a significant tax difference between getting your your benefits through an employer, which are tax-free benefits, as opposed to going out and buying insurance on your own as an individual, you're then paying for those premiums with after-tax dollars. That's not fair. That's not a level playing field. Now, states can uh, equalize that somewhat by eliminating the or giving a tax deduction for the premiums paid uh, for individual policies. So at least that would help uh, in an individual state level. Well, what's a fifth responsibility? Well, that's personal responsibility. Healthcare reform should combine personal responsibility with financial involvement to incentivize program participation, reward compliance, and support personal health management. Incentives that reinforce a culture of health, well-being, self-help, and shared responsibilities can have a significant effect on outcomes. If we don't require some level of personal responsibility, we just say, well, you go out and do whatever you want and the government's going to pay for whatever care you need, whatever medication, whatever hospitalization, whatever x-rays or treatments you have, then there's no reason that we ought to, as individuals, have to take some level of responsibility. And we do, if we're really going to have a reformed healthcare system. That has to be a key principle 
as part of any health care reform. What about access to all as the last basic principle I'll throw out here? Access to all. Targeted solutions such as high-risk pools for those with pre-existing conditions and subsidies for low-income individuals are more efficient than top-down regulations. Now, that's what the Georgia Public Policy Foundation has. They talk about high-risk pools. I prefer to use the term impaired health support coverages. Nobody likes to be identified as being a high-risk, but if they have some impaired health, they would like some support. But that means, again, sort of access to all is the real key here, not the term high-risk pools in this particular definition, but that there's guaranteed issue. Anybody who wants insurance can get insurance regardless of any pre-existing conditions. We don't want to push people off into some high-risk pools that are just poor coverage, high premiums, and kind of segment people out and away from the general population. We want them to have the best coverage, not the worst coverage. Well, that's the basic principles and what's going on in healthcare, uh, at least that we have time for in this segment. Let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back and look at some of the recommendations that would go with these level of personal responsibility, access for all, all of these basic principles that we've talked about. We'll come back and talk about recommendations. I'm your host, Dr. Hal. Every week we come to you with the information that you need so that you will be prepared to advocate for your family and for yourselves when it comes to your health care. God forbid we get Ossoff and Warnock in the Senate, and the left gets what they want, which is a majority in Congress and the White House. First of all, health care will be more expensive. There initially will be a public option. The government will run it. They will be initially very inexpensive, and it will drive commercial payers out of the health care market. Then the choices will disappear. The only insurer out there will be the federal government, and that's when we get a single payer. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside, and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Healthcare Insight. We're talking about the health and care and health insurance reforms that are likely to happen under a Biden administration or even their states. And what can happen as we move forward with some of the new group of members of the House of Representatives in particular that are interested in a real market change to get rid of Obamacare. We've been talking about repeal and replace for a long time, but Republicans really haven't put forward a good replace program. Well, this new crop of Mostly female House of Representative members are really interested in developing a free market solution. We've talked about Representative Beth 
Van Dyne, but there's a bunch of others that are also very interested in making health insurance reform. So in the last segment, we laid out some basic principles, mostly around patient-centered, personal responsibility, and a number of other issues that would be really important to any state legislator or federal legislator trying to put together a program. You have to start with basic principles and then build your program around that. So here's some of the recommendations that would be appropriate, especially for state legislators, but even at the national level. That is, most of the health care issues that are going to be brought forth in a state legislation are likely to affect the development of a competitive free market in health insurance, payment and delivery of health care services, and without recognizing that you're going to have lobbyists coming to you to try to gain an advantage in the marketplace with some legislation, whether it's at the state or the federal level, you won't really know what they're trying to do unless you dig deeper. Find out what the real motivation is, because many times legislation is used to sort of crowd out competition to create a marketplace that has more advantages to the people trying to write legislation. So without the presence of normal free market forces rather than the usual cost and quality competition, each special interest seeks to use legislation and regulations to create an advantage and capture market share. Now keep in mind that under a Biden administration, the Department of Health and Human Services has enormous control over health care regulations. And I guarantee you that they're going to seek to create an advantage and to capture market share for the types of products that they want to push, whether that's a, a Medicare for all advantage or it's elimination of health savings accounts or it's the removal of health reimbursement arrangements uh, that uh, were allowed under the Trump administration, that, but we're not allowed under the Obama administration, regulations have an enormous impact on the products and services that can be available in a free market. So these are three areas are crucial and should be the focus of any state-based health reform efforts, or again, any national effort. One, free market competition. That ought to be the number one issue. How do we create free market competition if we're going to actually replace Obamacare with something different. It has to be free market-based, and that means free market-based competition. Two, has to be consumer empowerment involved in any kind of reform that's put together. And the third, it has to be a program that improves the patient-provider relationship. Well, let's talk about free market competition, uh, especially at the state level, and I'm going to try to relate some of this even to Georgia as a specific example. Well, all players in the healthcare system, insurers, hospitals, doctors, and other providers, need to support, encourage, and participate in a competitive free market. Currently, their incentives are not aligned towards this action. Let's take a look at each. Consumers, they want price transparency. Well, recent polling reflected that 88% of Americans favor an initiative by the government to mandate insurers and hospitals to disclose their charges for services or negotiated rates. In fact, in 2019, President Trump issued an executive order 
on healthcare pricing transparency. Its stated aim was to distinguish between the charges that providers bill and the rates negotiated between payers and providers is to give patients proper incentives to seek information about price and healthcare services and provide useful price comparisons for shoppable services. In quotes, shoppable. What does that mean? Those are common services offered by multiple providers through the market, which patients can research and compare before making informed choices based on price and quality. Well, hospitals, either by choice or inability, have notably struggled with providing price transparency. According to a Reuters article in 2018, healthcare price transparency in the U.S. has not improved in recent years. The percentage of hospitals that could provide complete pricing information was in the minority in 2011, only 16%. And that percentage dropped by more than half by the time we got to 2016, only 7% could provide complete price transparency. Hospitals really don't want to do that. They want to go on their brand name, their history in a community. But the real information on price and quality is not available for most hospitals. Well, price transparency alone is insufficient to correct the rising costs of health care. So if we had it, that's not enough. Because consumers tend to equate a higher list price with better quality. An additional problem is that once annual deductibles have been met, consumers are less likely to price shop. Given that the difference in price among providers is now negligible to the consumer. Reference-based pricing is one cost-containment strategy that should be considered as it pays doctors, hospitals, labs, and clinics a market-adjusted percentage of an established benchmark. The reimbursement rate is typically 120 to 300% of Medicare pricing for a procedure, adjusted to account for the local market. Reference-based pricing has thus far proven to be one tool that has helped employers mitigate the rising costs of providing health insurance to employees, in addition to reducing premiums and deductibles for the plan beneficiaries, of course, and should be considered to reduce costs within the state health benefit plan in places like Georgia. Well, what about insurers? They have not been subject to free market forces either. Insurers have a valuable role in pooling risks and providing insurance coverage in order to establish their position. However, insurance industry has long influenced, heavily influenced, state legislative and the regulatory decisions. As third-party payers for medical services, insurers can distort normal free market purchasing decisions. Contractual arrangements between providers and insurers have led to a loss of consumer trust. We don't know what it is they've negotiated. And many times they keep it so secret, when we buy a product, we don't even know what it is until we get the bill. The hegemony has crowded out competitive health and information support services that offer alternatives to a one-stop shop. Restrictions on integration or coordination of outside services combined with strict control over consumer care and treatment options reduce competition and limit choices. So we've not had and have never had a competitive market for insurers. 
they've consolidated, they've dominated marketplaces, and it's not been to the benefit of consumers. In fact, competition has narrowed. As national insurance companies and associations merged, many smaller regional companies have exited the market. Consumers are harmed when an insurer exits from the market, even when premiums are predicted to fall, which typically happens with the application for consolidation. And that's because restricted choices and consequent reduction in product variety can have substantial effects on consumer welfare. The most recent market data show the top three insurers in a state like Georgia have a combined 76% market share. Anthem holds 37%, Kaiser Georgia 21%, and United Healthcare 18%. The lack of competition is exacerbated on the provider side as health systems and physician practices in areas like Metro Atlanta and Georgia continue to consolidate and independent physician practices are acquired by hospitals and health systems. So there's no real competition out there among insurance companies, hospital systems, and even physician practices. Well, the entry is very difficult for new insurers to get into the market. Potential entrants must contend with large capital requirements existing market control of providers and their current volume discount contracts. The Trump administration has encouraged more competition in the health industry. Additional capital requirements for insurers, of course, are no way to achieve that goal. On top of rising costs for consumers, such regulations would make it much more difficult for new insurers to enter the market and possibly push some existing players out. Give you an example. There are 23 active health maintenance organization licenses in Georgia. As of September 2020, nine of these were home based in Georgia. Why? Because Georgia has higher capital requirements than some other states have. So while they may be active, they're not home based in Georgia. They don't hire uh, home office people in Georgia. They don't process through Georgia. And many of them, even though they have licenses in Georgia, they really don't sell very much because most companies tend to sell a lot in their regional home bases. Well, all that makes it very difficult to have real health care reform if we have no real com- competition in a marketplace. Now, I've talked about, in particular, free market competition relative to insurance companies, hospital systems, and even provider practices, and the fact that consumers have not been trained to be competitive, to go out to the marketplace, and in fact, plan designs tend to limit, in some cases, after you go through the deductible, the interest of individuals going out and getting competitive prices. But if incentives were there so that there could be some savings if you use something that is lesser cost but higher quality even though maybe all of that is being paid by the insurance company insurance companies should set up incentives to use those more cost effective services so that's plan design that can encourage individuals to be more competitive in their shopping and uh, insight to healthcare costs those are products that could exist they could be developed at the state level they can be approved 
but the insurance industry doesn't have a lot of interest in doing that. So we need more competition to come in and create these new ideas, and that requires substantial changes in capital requirements, in approval processes, in allowing new companies to get in with competitive pricing and payments to insurance companies and or to hospital systems and to doctors. Well, let's take another quick break, and we can come back and talk a little bit more about some of these ideas that should be done at the state level to create a real free market. And these same ideas can be done at the federal level when we get the ability to do that. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today on Healthcare Insight, we're talking about basic principles of any healthcare reform, either at the state or federal level. We're holding out a little bit of hope that Georgia will elect a senator so that we won't get single-payer system, we won't get Medicare for all, and the Republicans begin to think about what kind of health reform they can actually put together to replace Obamacare. There are a lot of new House of Representatives members, new conservative Republican women that are interested in health care reform and actually putting together a plan that Republicans can coalesce around. So there is the possibility that the next two years will be a great time of discovery so that when they take control in 2022, they'll actually have a policy that they can put forth. Well, let's talk about some of the other issues and um, changes that really should be made to create a private free market. Well, let's take a look at one of the issues that typically comes up called most favored nation. It's the guaranteed lowest contractual price for services. And many times it limits even lower price. Sometimes it can be good, but depending upon when it's used, it can also have adverse unintended consequences because most favored nation status this is used by some private plans and Medicare and federal employees health benefit uh, contracts um, through such contracts between providers and health care plans um, here are some of the characteristics one a dominant health care plan raises rivals costs and or abuses its monopsony power that is a dominant buyer's ability to set terms. So the federal government does this under the Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan, for example. It says you cannot charge anybody else a lower fee for services than you charge the Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan. Well, that means if you want to do an investment to gain some business and charge something less to an employer in your community, you can't do that because if you do that, all of a sudden, the major part of your business, which may be the Federal Employees Health Benefit uh, Act, uh, may not be the, the biggest one you have, but it's a, a substantial amount of your revenue or your or your income. You can't make that investment in a small local company because they will implement most favored nation status, and you're going to have to pay back the federal government 
a whole bunch of money just because you charged uh, somebody else a little bit less than what you charged the federal government. Second, the problem is a cartel of providers imposes a most favored nation clause on members to facilitate this sort of cartel pricing. So people get together and say, we're all going to be most favored nations. So it makes it very difficult for a new player to come in. Um, in addition to prohibiting the guarantee of best prices, 10 states, including Georgia, which we've been sort of talking about as an example, prohibit a plan from requiring a participating provider to disclose the rates the provider negotiates with any other plan. So there is no transparency. It will be interesting to see how that plays out with the Georgia law and regulations versus what uh, President Trump has just mandated, that, that there actually can't has to be posted prices uh, for a number of services, both in the hospital setting and in a uh, doctor's office. So let's talk about some of the other issues that providers do not work within a free market. Providers often control health care services offered consumers and exclude competitors through state-issued certificates of need. Now, let's talk about what certificate of need is. In the old days, hospitals, in order to expand or to create a new hospital, had to go through the state to get a certificate of need to show that there was a need for services. Because in the past, when we didn't have a a system of uh, preferred providers and HMOs and at least some level of competition there for different product types, hospitals would create a market when they got themselves built. In other words, they would, they would generate more expenses within the community that didn't seem to be justified by the real medical need. It's just that the certificate of need allowed a hospital to be built, and as a consequence, um, they generated more revenue. So certificates of need are available in most states, not all states, but in most states, and it creates a non-competitive environment, uh, whereas today um, hospitals are so dominant that they need more competition, and they use the certificate of need to keep companies out. For example, uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America wanted to build a hospital in Atlanta, a cancer treatment center. But there were other cancer treatment centers in the area at Emory and Northside and others, and they're very profitable um, segments of the market. So ultimately, um, through going through court and, and, and political interests that wanted uh, the um, Cancer Treatment Centers of America to be in Atlanta, they were able to build a hospital. They got a, a sort of a dormant a certificate of need from some doctors who were not going to build a hospital. And then they, when they built the hospital, they had to guarantee that that 60% of the hospital was from out-of-state patients. In other words, Georgians couldn't use that facility. And so once it was filled up to the uh, uh, requirements for out-of-state people, so <laughs> it made a strange environment. There could be open beds there, but Georgia uh, citizens couldn't access those beds because they were already filled up with the number of Georgians that were allowed and they had to bring in people from out of state to fill up the rest of the uh, beds. Ridiculous environment. It'd be like a restaurant saying, well, uh, I can only um, serve um, you know, 40% of locals. Everybody else has to be out of town. And once they fill up with 40% locals, um, locals can't get in anymore. Wouldn't that be a stupid thing for a restaurant to be required to do? Anyway, the CONs have discouraged Price transparency by facilitating market dominance for a handful of health systems. 
They limited competition through local market mergers and reinforcing service line limitations and strengthening territorial advantages. So providers, the hospital systems, really have not been working under a competitive environment. So you can see the thread that we've been building here through all these comments. There needs to be more competition among insurance companies, among hospitals, among physicians. Um, the entire healthcare system needs to have greater competition so that we can have innovation, price transparency, and cost effectiveness, and quality. Let's talk about the merging of hospital systems and the purchasing of physician practices and how that reduces competition, alternatives, and choice. Hospital prices in monopoly markets are more than 15% higher in prices in areas with four or more competitors. Hospitals with just one or two competitors charge between 5 and 6% more than hospitals with more than four uh, rivals. So providers can use their market dominance to negotiate higher claims reimbursement rates is what happens. And a study by researchers from Harvard Medical School Department of Healthcare Policy determined that physician-hospital integration has led to higher prices with no evidence of offsetting reduction in the use of care. The findings published in JAMA International Medicine suggest that integration between physicians and hospitals strengthens their bargaining position with insurers, particularly for prices of outpatient care, but has not led to more efficient care. In Georgia, again, using Georgia as an example, hospitals charge private insurers on average nearly three times the rate of Medicare, and it is the ninth highest in the country. So, Merging hospital systems does not benefit lower prices, does not benefit the consumer. Now, the continued dominance of fee-for-service reimbursements in defensive medicine increases unnecessary use of medical services. So one of the core issues and problems that has existed for years is the fee-for-service reimbursement, which encourages more services, obviously. If you're getting paid for each item that you do, you tend to do more of those items. So usually defensive medicine raises the cost of health care for patients. Practicing defensive medicine is not good for patients or physicians. The adverse, adverse effects of defensive medicine are not limited to increased costs of health care, but also affect the overall quality of the health care system. So defensive medicine, fee-for-service, all that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand and increases the cost of services that uh, the consumer, the patient, has to pay without any increase in quality. Now, let's talk about physicians and licensing restrictions that can limit the use of alternative and ancillary medical professionals. The generally stated purpose for licensing and the primary justification is to ensure quality and services offered to the public. Rarely considered by licensing agents, however, are shortages of licensed personnel underutilization of allied personnel, and discrimination against minority group members seeking licensure. The state should consider making permanent the governor of Georgia's executive orders issued during the COVID-19 pandemic, which allows for out-of-state physicians, nurses, and other medical personnel in good standing from other states to practice in Georgia. Physicians in good standing from other states were previously granted the ability to practice telemedicine in Georgia in 2019. 
Well, that should be the policy across the country. If you're a provider in good standing, you should be able to provide medical care and services in any other state. We should also be allowing some of the allied medical professionals, whether it's physician's assistants, whether it's surgical assistant, um, nurses, um, psychologists that don't have prescribing rights for psychotropic drugs, they ought to all be allowed to do that. But we have these guild wars and they get uh, battled out in the regulatory and legal process of getting states to pass things that prevent competition from really occurring. So, again, we, if we're going to go to a free market system this time, let's talk about competition, let's talk about alternatives, and getting rid of the silos and the guild wars that exist today that prevent real competition. So let's talk about the legal and regulatory restrictions And they should be consistent with improved technology and service expertise. According to a Cisco global survey, 74% of patients are comfortable with easy access to healthcare services through technology instead of in-person interactions with providers. Clearly, this is the way the new generation is going. An increase in telemedicine services offered by providers during the COVID-19 pandemic has also helped to ease familiarity among patients. So patients are getting used to this now. They sort of had to uh, get um, telemedicine visits and consultations, and now people are more used to it. Young people were always going to be more comfortable with using technology and computers and their cell phones and all those sorts of things to connect to providers of care. Now it's much more widespread and it's growing exponentially. So these are many of the items and issues that need to be addressed in healthcare reform at the state and or federal level. Let's take a quick break, and I want to come back. I want to wrap up with more ideas on how we can take basic principles and apply them to actual situations to improve the marketplace and create a real free market solution. When Lou Gehrig was the first to be featured on the front of the Wheaties box in 1924, it was because of his strength as a baseball player. Michael Jordan's basketball strength has put him on the Wheaties box 18 times. However, we all know that strength comes in many other forms, such as academics, emotions, and spirituality. Recently, I visited a museum featuring the strongest man in the world. His name was Paul Anderson, who grew up in Toccoa, Georgia, and won his strength title as an Olympic champion many times. Yet, it was his inner strength in caring for children that made him a greater champion. This athlete's compassion was better than a box of cereal and lasted longer than all of his gold medals. God looks at our inner strength and supplies it when we're weak. The Apostle Paul reminded us of the true source of strength when he said that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. What's your claim to fame? Who's your source of strength? If you think that you can do it all on your own, you're wrong and you're weak. If you ask God to make you strong, you can't go wrong. This is John Bryan bringing you today's Key Word. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight for our final segment this week. We've been throwing out an awful lot of ideas on what a free market health reform should include, starting with basic principles and talking about very specific items that anybody out there who is in the position, whether at the state level, a state elected official, a House member, a Senate member in a given state like Georgia, or at the federal level in the U.S. House and Senate. I hope somebody passes this along or they happen to find an 
this podcast and listen to it because these are all ideas that really should be considered. And for some of those new House members that are looking to establish a program, let me suggest they go to a website. I've even read where some of them want to have personalized health insurance. Well, we've been talking about that, and all these ideas that I'm going through this week are all part of personalized health insurance proposals that we've talked about on this podcast for many months. But I would suggest anybody looking for more specific ideas should go to www.personalizedhealthinsurance.net, personalizedhealthinsurance.net, and you'll find a whole complete outline for national health reform uh, program. But let's continue and wrap up this week with more specific ideas on what anybody in the power of making change can actually do. Let's recognize that consumers do not effectively seek medical alternatives today. So despite generally understanding that you don't get what you pay for in healthcare, Americans still have limited awareness that prices vary in the first place. More than one in three surveyed, 37%, believe doctors charge the same prices for the same services, while 32% believe hospitals charge the same prices for the same services. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. It's amazing the difference in the cost from one service to another, from one hospital to another one, and even from one geography to another one. It's amazing the variation in costs. And so consumers need to understand that they can shop and get different prices. And in fact, they can even negotiate individual prices with many providers. But consumers do not adequately save for minor and or preventive care services that would encourage a financial involvement in shopping for services to begin with. Health Savings Accounts, or HSAs, are plan designs that allow for consumer health savings to pay for medical expenses on a tax-advantaged basis. A leading HSA investment advisor notes, however, that 16% of HSA accounts at the end of 2018 were unfunded. So people set up the accounts, but then they didn't put any money in. Now, the way most accounts work is they're in the group plans, and the employer will put some money in, and then the employee will usually uh, add additional funds. But many individual policies are set up, and a lot of them are set up to be funded, but people in cash crunch, and they don't think about it, and they're just not putting money into this HSA, and they're losing tax-advantaged um, uh, investments. So while this represents an improvement that 16% over the 20% of unfunded accounts in 2017 and 24% in 2016, the reduction is largely attributed to an increase in account closures by consumers. So they were getting out of uh, the accounts because they just weren't using them. So states, and Georgia in particular, again, using that as the example, are not producing enough physicians to handle a growing and aging population. Physician, concierge services, and other alternative models can offer competition and new consumer choices, but also further reduce access to primary care services for the general population. So let me explain what's happening here. Many physicians are kind of fed up with the whole process of reimbursements and paperwork and the processing that they they just want to deliver health care. So what many of them are doing, especially as they get older, they want to do what 
are referred to as concierge services. And basically many states allow this now. Sometimes it takes extra um, legislation to uh, be sure that the physician's office is not acting as a mini insurance company, if you will. But the physician is taking in, say, a monthly fee um, from its patients. And for that monthly fee, they say, I will limit my practice to so many people and I will give you special care and services. And you can call me anytime. You can have my uh, email. You can have my, you can give me some text messages. Um, many of the things that your doctor today in a normal system doesn't get reimbursed for. How many times does the doctor really call you? That's usually if you get a call at all, it's a nurse telling you about your exam results or asking you to come in for your appointment. But rarely do you talk to your doctor uh, by, uh, by telephone or by text messaging. So what physicians are doing now is they're saying, the heck with the whole system. I don't want to be under government control. I don't want to have to do all the paperwork. I enjoy meeting with patients. And I'm going to set up a new practice that doesn't keep me up all night, all day, working on patients. Um, I'm available to a much smaller group. And, yes, if I get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning from one of my concierge patients, I will take that. But it's not going to be wide open. Um, so it almost gets down to a model of, um, of just a monthly payment to a physician and then you can get a high deductible health plan uh, to uh, cover the catastrophic type claims. But under Obamacare, sometimes getting a catastrophic plan with an underlying physician concierge service or primary care service is not even allowed because you can't package it all together and doesn't count as the, um, the coverage that's required by Obamacare. Uh, but physicians are going this way and saying, okay, I don't care what's happening with Obamacare. I don't care to see certain... Uh, problem issues that uh, working with the government. So I'm going to just take a monthly fee and I will provide access to primary care services uh, for those who sign up. And multiple studies have shown that Georgia, for example, is 10,000 physicians short statewide. Now that's just in Georgia. So think about that across the country. We're not graduating enough physicians. There are more physicians that are uh, spots that are being opened up in many states because of the recognized shortages. But Georgia is at least 10,000 physicians short statewide. And it's mostly concentrated in the rural areas where the shortage is. Uh, physicians tend to want to live in the metropolitan areas. Usually their, their fees can be higher. Their negotiated rates with insurance carriers are higher. Um, but these days with the cities being so problematic with uh, recognition of of civil unrest that's going in and, and the wide access of Internet, um, the rural areas are a great place for doctors to have a better lifestyle for their families and for their children. And uh, in many of those rural areas, they've got great schools. Sometimes they're private schools, but even public schools in the rural areas can be uh, very valuable. And the whole lifestyle and ability to bring your kids up with a uh, with a different environment uh, can be very um, um, lucrative uh, and attractive for many uh, many physicians that are getting out and starting their practices. Uh, they can be leading members of the community almost immediately. So in response to this shortage, all five medical schools in Georgia have increased their medical student enrollment. Um, give you a quick example. In 2012, Georgia funded um, funding increased uh, residency slots with hospitals matching dollar for dollar. 
result in 400 additional presidency slots with 613 projected by 2025. So Georgia is starting that process. It's a slow process. they got to go through all their training. It's years and years before they even get out into the general public to practice medicine. But Georgia's making that step, and hopefully other uh, states are as well. But if you want to have competition, you want to have more services available, you want to increase the quality, this is another key area is to produce more physicians because with the way healthcare is going, physicians is kind of fed up and uh, the average age of the physician population is getting too old and continuing to retire. So Georgia also offers a state tax credit of $5,000 per year, up to five years for physicians in rural areas. So Georgia is trying to get more people in the rural areas. There are a lot of rural areas in Georgia, as there are in most states. And so there needs to be some encouragement. Um, and the other thing Georgia does as an example, um, additional student loan incentives are available for uh, rural physicians through the Georgia Board uh, for Physician Workforce. So the key here is do whatever you have to do at the state, do whatever we have to do at the federal level to create more physicians that are going into general medicine, internal medicine, family practice, because that's where the real shortage is. We've got lots of cardiologists, orthopedists, uh, specialists out there, and we need to have more people uh, getting into uh, primary care services. But that also feeds into the idea that allied medical providers uh, need to be expanded, what their scope of, of services can be and not be limited. Unfortunately, again, many physician organizations in the states have limited the ability for these allied providers to be able to expand their services. So once again, the real key in all of this that we've gone through, all these ideas, all these uh, situations that we've laid out in detail now, um, really relate to uh, free market competition as the major uh, issue to be addressed. Embedded in all that is actually if we change some of that, we empower the consumer to do more, to get involved, to save, to uh, limit the the dependency on an insurance company's approval of certain services. If we have health savings accounts, the employee can pay for those medical services out of that and not have to go begging the insurance companies to actually uh, reimburse that or consider that an appropriate expense. So pre-market competition feeds into consumer empowerment. And if we do all these things right, we empower the consumer with information and knowledge and financial uh, financial stake in the game, and we make these changes around competition, we will improve the patient-provider relationship. What's been happening for many years now is the insurance company has had third parties uh, review physician services, decide whether something should be paid for, telling a patient, um, no, you can't have it, so it's called delay. Um, deny and defeat so that there's um, not much uh, the patient can do. They just get turned down by the uh, insurance company and it really destroys that patient-provider relationship, which is the most trusted relationship in the whole healthcare system. So that's what needs to be strengthened overall. So let me wrap up just by saying that at the state level, at the federal level, if you're a staff member to a legislator, Bring this kind of information to them. Go to the website that I mentioned, which is personalizedhealthinsurance.net. 
and it will lay out an entire program for health reform that is a part of a repeal and replace of Obamacare with free market solutions. And the specifics in this webcast talk about areas where all those changes really would have a big impact on changing the delivery of health care as well as the competitiveness of health insurers. So I hope you've learned something this week. I hope you've enjoyed this program, and I hope you'll come back and listen on America's Web Radio to this program, Healthcare Insight. I'm Ron Bachman signing off this week. I hope you will join us again next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.